um, is the healings, you know, that we, we read those stories all the time. And, um, and, you know, they almost become something we say so many times that we don't <laughs> take stock of how fascinating that is and how miraculous that is, you know. And Jesus healed some more people. Um, perhaps, though, uh, sometimes what we're supposed to hear when we, uh, what we're supposed to focus on when we hear those stories are some of the details around the healing. For instance, there was one man who who turned back. Who was that in the story? The Samaritan. And um, I noticed that Jesus stops and says, so it was just one foreigner who came back. And in our time uh, where, boy, we're real, I think, rightfully sensitive about these racial issues and religious issues, it's a little shocking to hear Jesus say something like that. Oftentimes Jesus says things that are very racially, almost, boy, if you didn't get know the context, it would almost sound offensive. I remember one story where Jesus said uh, he was eating dinner and there was a Samaritan woman. And, and uh, should we give to dogs what's meant for the children? And he's talking about the Samaritan woman. And of course she responds by saying, yes, but even the dogs get to eat the crumbs from the master's table. And he says, ah, you know, you know what you're talking about. This woman's faith is... But at least at first you think, holy smokes, I mean, what a... That just sounds awful. Um, there's so much in what I want to say today that like that, I think, speaks to the world that we live in right now. Um, and yet there's so much that some of the language that I'm going to use, I'm afraid um, because we're sort of embroiled in a political election season, that the terms are going to be very difficult to separate from that. Um, I'm also afraid this is going to be a boring message. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> if it is, I apologize. <laughs> this was a very difficult week, and I kept coming back to preparing for this. And it, it didn't... Um, <laughs> I never felt like I got it to, to mesh really well. I was, um, I was raised um, to be a good conservative. Um, I, I, I now think that maybe those are, uh, maybe that's an oxymoron, but, um, I, but I was raised in a very conservative family, and, and I mean that theologically and, and politically. Um, and, and when I use the word conservative and liberal today, I, I, want to, I want us to think in terms of theologically conservative and liberal. Um, not really politically conservative and liberal. I don't really, I don't really want to venture into into that too much this morning. But um, I'll say this: that as as I as I grew out of what I what I consider theological conservatism, um, most of my family doesn't talk to me anymore. Because uh, and most of my old conservative friends don't, because I don't have much positive to say about their viewpoint. Theological conservatism, though, is kind of a reaction. I don't want to say kind of. It is simply a reaction 
to 19th century theological liberalism and, and, and 20th century post-modern uh, thinking. And it's born, uh, that, that theological liberalism is born out of a, uh, an enlightenment thinking that's established by a man named Immanuel Kant. Kant, um, well, I, I, that's an oversimplification. Much of what I'm going to say is an oversimplification. But Kant began in, a, in, in late uh, 18th century, early 19th century, saying, um, how, do we, how do we know what we can know and can't know? And um, eventually, uh, in trying to establish uh, what it is we can know and what it is we can only think about, um, we ended up with a, a way of thinking that we, re- we refer to nowadays as modernity. Again, I'm going to do a lot of oversight. I took a whole class on this, and I could do a whole class on it, but again, I, I'm afraid it's going to be terribly uninteresting. Um, but the uh, um, theologically speaking, um, and again, this is a drastic oversimplification, and you have to be very cautious about uh, lumping in groups of people who think a certain way and saying they all think this or that. That, that would be unfair. But uh, at, at its core, theological liberalism uh, began to what we call demythologize scripture. And there's going to be a point to this, hopefully, here in a few minutes. So just try to hang with me for a few minutes. But theological liberalism tended to try to demythologize scripture for practical concerns and, and what they consider practical concerns. And so when theologically liberal people in the 19th century were reading scripture, they were saying, well, of course we can't believe in these supernatural parts. And we certainly don't believe that God's got some future end where we all escape somewhere um, in, in heaven or whatever. And so it's always tried to emphasize the natural part of Jesus' kingdom message. There's a, it's a now-only reality. And it says that Jesus really didn't have anything to say about God doing something in the future, or maybe even after we die. And so because it tends to focus on the now part, and, and by the way, let me say that the conservatives have made just as terrible of a mistake by only focusing on the heaven part someday. Um, and, and totally not paying attention to the now part. However, what's become uh, what people are talking about now, and I think and, and I think they have been talking about it for some time now, is that Jesus' message was a now and not yet reality. Now and not yet. That there are now parts. When Jesus came, he didn't say, "Oh, good, the kingdom of God is coming someday." He said, "No, the kingdom of God is here now." It's happening in front of you. And yet Jesus also talked about something that was in the future. But the liberal agenda tended to see Jesus' movement as one which was primarily a um, a, a, a social construct that could be accomplished through liberal systems. And so, and this is very much a part of very much holding the hand of of those 19th century modern thinkers. Um, And we still hear this language. You hear it a lot in political discourse. When when people want to talk about the way we're going to fix things, and everything's always broken, we always want to fix it through the same things. If we just can get democracy and education, education will fix everything. I'm in education, so it, it behooves me financially to think that education can fix things. But it, uh, I, I've noticed that it doesn't always 
things. Uh, technology and medicine and science and legislation. If we can just make these things work, then the, the kingdom will be manifest in its entirety. And that's really uh, in that that modern thinking that says, oh, we don't do the eschatological part. That's really the way we we think that the kingdom is going to work out. And, you know, conservatives buy that too. They just just think about it a little differently. And that's why when somebody tells me I'm a conservative, I just just say, well, it's just a slightly different way of talking about being liberal. <laughs> That's why they don't like me anymore. But uh, modern liberal Christianity is is largely a social revolution, and 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 they tend to say, no, there's nothing about the not yet. It's all about the now. And of course, the conservatives think only about the not yet, and they have nothing to do with the now. Um, but the notion is ultimately that you and I can sort of usher in the kingdom through democracy and education and technology and medicine and science and legislation and all those things, which means that we essentially use the powers with which to overcome the powers, which I think is very different from the message of the cross. I've actually been called a postmodern. I'm definitely post-liberal. But one of the things that that happened to modernity is the Holocaust. When we think that education and technology and all those things can save us, we realize that education and technology and all those things actually also have a tendency to make the world a lot worse. You can't legislate and educate hate away. But you notice that Jesus didn't behave... I'm setting up a, a liberal versus conservative dilemma to tell you that it, it doesn't exist. There is no dilemma. You don't have to be either liberal or conservative. Jesus didn't behave like either one of those. His kingdom was a critique of the powers. He didn't walk away from all of the problems of the world and pretend like they didn't exist. I was uh, driving along uh, yesterday, and nothing tests my faith quite like driving. Um, but uh, I was driving along, and I saw somebody's bumper sticker. And um, oh, I, if I can remember exactly how it said it, it said, um, um, "You don't have to suffer. Suffering is a choice." And I thought, well, tell that to the people who've lost someone to cancer. Tell that to the people in the Holocaust. Tell that to the refugees from Syria in Aleppo. There's a tendency that we have to want to ignore the problems of the world, and and we think if we can just pretend like they don't exist, maybe they won't exist. Jesus wasn't like that. He addressed the problems of the world, and he talked about things like justice, and he pursued things like justice, and he spoke about what was evil, and he pointed right at it and said, that's wrong. And yet, Jesus didn't walk around lobbying to get crucifixion illegalized. And I wish he had. I'm opposed to the death penalty. And if uh, if a legislator asked me what I thought, I would say, I don't think we should kill people, period. 
But, as much as I feel that way, and as much as, as I believe that I can justify that belief, I noticed that Jesus didn't walk around and organize marches to sway legislation about the use of crucifixion. He didn't try to overcome the cross that way uh, by using the powers of this world to, to defeat it. In other words, really what you're doing by doing that is using the cross with which to defeat the cross. Instead, Jesus' answer to the cross and to, and to suffering, Jesus' answer to the injustices that happen in the world is to suffer the cross and to call people to suffer it with him. This is, to me, the great tension of living as a Christian who is seeking justice in the world. Is that by doing it, whatever we do, we have to make sure that we're doing it in the way that Jesus would do it, which is to bear the cross with the people who suffer without trying to use the cross to stop the suffering. Jesus' answer to the injustice of the world is not education or lobbying, but to identify with those who suffer injustice, looking forward to God's vindication of him in the resurrection. In Hebrews 12 and Hebrews, uh, Hebrews chapter 12, it says that Jesus, uh, he bore the cross despising its shame, and it says he did it because he was looking forward to what God was going to do for him. I, I agree passionately with Jürgen Moltmann. Jürgen Moltmann is a theologian who's going to be at uh, Candler in a few weeks. I agree passionately with him about his critique of the, the liberal theological agenda that says, don't think about what God's going to do in the future. It's all about the now. And he said, no. Jesus' message is inherently eschatological. It says something about what God is going to do someday. That we live the cross today as a witness to the resurrection. As a witness to the resurrection. Which is why Paul says this in in Romans chapter 8. I'm I'm really stuck on this passage. I'm just going to read it to you. Romans chapter 8. I'm going to start back in verse 16. Actually, you know, I'll start back in verse 14. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by Him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in His sufferings, in order that we may also share in His glory. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly, 
as we wait eagerly for, the, for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. What Paul is looking forward to, Paul says something very bold at the beginning. He says, we will share in Jesus' reward if indeed we share in His suffering. In my opinion, the chiefest failure of modern theology is the failure to take seriously the problem that Jesus came to solve. And that is the darkness of sin. By reducing it to something that we could do without Jesus' help, educating people, creating new laws, technology. Let me try to put it in very practical here on this farm terms. Um, Eric, I think, mentioned the pumpkin sale and and, um, referred to it as good kingdom work, and it is. It's one of my favorite things I've ever been involved with. It's It's been a lot of fun. It's been backbreaking work. Um, And it's been a a beautiful blessing for the Navajo Nation. And I think that the pumpkin sale is a very kingdom thing to do. I think it brings people to the farm, and I think it brings brings peace to the community. It lives out peace to the community. But we have to understand that the pumpkin sale cannot bring peace to the Navajo Nation. We could never we could never sell enough pumpkins to undo the the pain and the suffering that an entire people group has has suffered. What the pumpkin sale is is a small candle in a very dark world. It's a witness to the coming of God's kingdom. But the resurrection is the only thing that can undo what's been done. The evil that's been done. The pumpkin sale is a pointer of peace. The pumpkin sale is a now moment while we wait for the not yet. The farm itself. I love the farm. I love going in. I love the goats. I love the goats especially. The goats are so cute. Every time I'm here, I try to go back and look at the goats and spend time with the goats. Um, one of them, I put my finger in there, and he always sucks on my finger. And Vanjie thinks it's disgusting, but I just think it's the most wonderful thing in the world. Um, I love the goats. Uh, chickens, I'm not as big a fan of. Um, we have a, a ram, I think, that might be possessed by a demon. But I still, I love the sheep. They're they're wonderful, and I love the fact that there's there's things growing on the farm. It's been such a wonderful blessing in the last few weeks to see that somebody has come and started planting on the farm again and that things are coming up out of the ground and and I love the sustainable uh, ideas about the farm. This is all very kingdom oriented. It is is the way I think God's peace is supposed to be working out through the kingdom of God in the church. I love the farm. It's kingdom work. But it can't make peace in the world. It's just a very dark world. It, we could never farm enough here in East Atlanta to make peace in the world. We are people who live in a very dark place. We are people who are in an exile. 
I, uh, I love going to Christmas cantatas. It's hard to believe it. The holiday season is almost really upon us. But I love going to Christmas cantatas. And Vanjie and I always try to go to multiple ones. Of course, we'll come here. Um, but one of the, my favorite parts of doing a Christmas cantata is the part where they all get out the little candles, right? So the, all the lights dim, and then they hand out the little candles, and there's always some kid that's about to set something on fire, you know. Uh, but they hand out the little candles, and, and as the lights go, they light it, you could see the light through the Suddenly you could see everybody's faces, and it's dimly lit by the candles, you see, I feel like I'm looking at if it's in a big building or you know, a thousand ghostly faces of people who are worshiping and, 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 and thinking about the, the birth of Christ. I think it's a beautiful moment, but everybody has their own little candle. Everybody is their own little light. But have you noticed that even with a thousand people with candles in the room, it's still a dark room. Everybody has their candles. And what happens in a dark room when somebody lights a candle? If you're in a completely dark room and somebody lights a candle, what does everybody immediately look at? Your eyes are drawn to it. And yet it lights up just a little bit, but it doesn't light up the whole room because it's just a little candle. John said that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and all things were created through Him, and Without him, nothing was created that was created. And he says, in him was light, and that light was the, the life. Or that in him was life, and that life was the light of all people. Jesus is the light because his light comes from the Father. And by following Jesus, we, are, we cannot be the light, but we are like little lights. We don't light up this world but we will be lights in dark place, which are a witness to the coming light of the kingdom of God. We have to take very seriously the darkness we live in and live as lights which are witnesses to the true light that lights the whole world. I'm almost finished. This is my main point. This is my only point. And I believe it's well made by one of the lectionary passages today. In Jeremiah 29. It would have just made complete sense for me to have already turned to Jeremiah 29. When when I was working at the Christian school in the adult program, I I, I was teaching in in a... I taught theology and Bible in a... Christian school, um, Christian college, and adult program. And um, at one point, the uh, at one point, the admissions department wanted to try to get people excited about going back to school. One of the things that happens with adult students is um, that you're you're trying to attract people who are adults who started school but never finished. You're always trying to convince them because that means that they might not finish now, too. So you're always trying to convince them to finish. And so um, one of the ways that we did this was by giving them T-shirts that talked about how great it was going to be when they graduated. Tried to tried not to focus on the student loans bit, but uh, you, you focused on how great it was going to be when they graduated. And, and so we, uh, we wanted, they wanted to make these T-shirts that had uh, the, the school's name on the front and the name of the program, and on the back they wanted to put a Bible verse. And so they picked that Bible verse that 
Every time someone says it, I cringe a little because they almost never say it in the context in which it's, it's meant. They pick Jeremiah 29.11. You probably can repeat it by heart. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a future and a hope. They put this on the back. And what they were trying to communicate to everybody is, oh, look, things are about to get really great for you. God wants wonderful things for you. And we're always, I think, we're always trying to have the good stuff without the bad stuff. Very few, many people quote Jeremiah 20, 29, 11. I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you and not to harm you. But very, very, very few people ever quote Jeremiah 29, 10. What does Jeremiah 29, 10 say? This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. In about 70 years, most of you will be dead by then. Jeremiah was telling the Israelites who were defeated and captured and living in exile. You're going to be there for a while. The passage that is from our lectionary today starts in Jeremiah 29 verse 1. This is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders among the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the other people Nebuchadnezzar had carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Skip on down to verse 4. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to to the Lord for it because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the, the dreams of your uh, the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. What Jeremiah was telling the Israelites who were going into exile was, yes, God has plans sometime in the future, but you best hunker down for the exile. To assume that God meant only the good things is to assume that the exile wasn't real. The Bible doesn't pretend like the darkness of this world isn't really dark. The Bible says God has something on the other side of it for you. This week, in a couple weeks, I mentioned Jürgen Moltmann is going to be at Candler. Jürgen Moltmann has a lot to say about these things. By contrast, uh, this week, um, Joel Osteen was at uh, the Marietta Sam's Club signing his book. I nearly nearly went, and then I decided I didn't think he was going to listen to anything I had to say. On the one hand, you have Jürgen Moltmann, who's coming to a school to teach, and he says that The cross is what we must suffer when we look forward to what God is going to bring in the resurrection. On the other hand, you have somebody that says, you don't have to suffer at all, that's all figment of your 
your imagination. If you just believe, God's going to take care of all that for you. One is theology and the other is heresy, pretending that we don't have to bear the cross. Just like Israel, we too live in a very dark place. We live in a type of exile. And to assume that we can fix these things um, through legislation or just believing a certain way, assuming that we can fix those things, is to assume that the cross isn't necessary. And I suppose if the cross isn't necessary, we might think that the resurrection isn't necessary either. That you and I cannot make peace ourselves through human means, that's not the point of the gospel. The point of the gospel is that we should partner in the peace that Jesus has made through the cross by bearing the cross with Jesus. The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians, Jesus himself is our peace who made the two one. He did this on the cross by putting to death the enmity with his own flesh. Paul knew that peace was not something we could make, but something we had to live as we follow the one who could make it, Jesus. Our peace, our hope, is in the kingdom of God that Jesus has established. We ourselves do not establish it. He has established it. And He is the one who is going to fulfill it. He didn't establish it and tell us that we're the ones who are going to make it happen. He established it and He will fulfill it because as we know, Jesus is the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega. Jesus doesn't say in Revelation, I'm the Alpha and you're the Omega. I am the beginning and the end. He is the pioneer, according to Hebrews 12.2, He is the pioneer and the completer of our faith. He is the subject and the object. We as a people cannot create this hope. We cannot even usher it in. We can instead follow Jesus in living it out as a witness to what He will complete when the not yet becomes the now. When the Apostle Paul's vision in Romans 8 is realized, and those of us along with, who along with the cloud of witnesses in Hebrews 12 are and have been in this exile are finished waiting patiently for Jesus the pioneer to also be completer, then we will see its fullness. Until then, we may each have to wait another 70 years or so for the redemption of these bodies, for the hope that Jeremiah promised Israel 2,700 years ago.